0: How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach. one of the pastors here. Uh, If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 22. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a a little story. So two weeks ago, my wife's grandmother turned 100. Okay? So we got to celebrate her uh, 100th birthday, and they put 100 candles on the cake. And I have never seen that much fire in my life. They were like plumes of smoke. We're like, hurry, let's get this birthday song over with so this place doesn't burn down. But she turned uh, 100, and uh, her name is Lucille, but nobody calls her that, right? Because when you have a grandparent, you call them by these little cutesy grandparent nicknames, right, so you have your paw, or your, your Poopaw or your, your Gigi or your, uh, you know, whatever it might be uh, with, your, uh, with your grandparents, uh, and that's what you call them even when you become an adult right? So you have no idea how many times I've gotten a call in my ministerial career where someone says, Zach, can you pray for my meemaw because she's in the hospital? And I'm like, I would love to do that, but what on earth is a Mima? I have no idea what that is because they don't say grandmother. They just call them that. And so uh, we call uh, Lucille, we call her Mama, And so she celebrated her 100th birthday. Uh, just to put that in perspective for you, she was born in 1919. Gas was 23 cents a gallon. A movie ticket was 10 cents And the average monthly income, $92, okay? So we're there celebrating uh, her birthday, and uh, an older gentleman comes up to me, a guy that I've never met, and uh, he sticks out his hand, and he goes to shake my hand, and he said, excuse me, sir, were you ever in the Marine Corps? And I said, well, thank you for recognizing my uh, very rectangular face, Uh, but no, I was never in the Marine Corps. Why do you ask? And he says, you look exactly like somebody I served with in Vietnam. And I thought, how old do I look? <laughs> just, to, just to put that in perspective, I was born 11 years after the Vietnam War ended. Okay, So he comes up and he says that to me, and then he tells me some interesting stories of when he was in Vietnam. But then towards the second half of the conversation, he just started going off on a bunch of random things about once he got back. They were just random stories about his family and all these other things. Now, there's a tendency to think that that's kind of what's going on here in Romans. Paul's already given us the Vietnam War stories, he's already given us the good stuff, he's given us theology, he's talked about predestination, he's talked about justification, he's talked about sanctification, all these other kind of things, and this last part of Romans, it can kind of feel like he's now just talking about random things. He's going to talk about his travel plans, he's going to talk about people that he wants you to greet and pray for, he's going to ask you to pray for him, and it can seem like we're already past all the good stuff in Romans, and now we just have kind of these concluding remarks, and so I want us to fight against that thinking. All of God's Word is equally inspired. Amen? All of it is for your good. The genealogies, the weird stories, the numbers, concluding remarks, opening remarks are all given to us for a reason. So hang in there as we get through this last uh, few parts of Romans over the next few weeks, uh, and we will, uh, there are still things to, uh, to learn and to be rebuked for and corrected on and encouraged in. So let's pray, and then we'll get into verse 22. Almighty God, we confess that uh, you are the only God. You are the Trinitarian God, the God of orthodox, historic, biblical Christianity, who's Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. And we ask for grace as we approach your word, that you would shape us, that you would rebuke us for our pride, and that you would encourage us in your love for us. And so we love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's look at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Okay, now that's a weird starting point, so let me give you a lot of background and context so this makes sense. Okay, first of all, ask yourself this question, what is an apostle? What is an apostle? That term can be used in two different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes an apostle is used just generically for anybody who's a messenger, anybody who's sent out. The Greek word apostolos actually means sent out one. Your mailman, in a sense, is an apostle in that sense, okay? That kind of lowercase a, just generic, anybody who's sent out. But there is a more important use of the word apostle, and it's used the vast majority of time in the New Testament. The apostles are the ones who are, had seen the risen Christ. They're the ones who've been commissioned by Christ to bring the gospel to the ends of the world, and that's what an apostle is, okay? A capital A apostle. Seen Jesus, been commissioned by Jesus, have the authority to write scripture. An Old Testament prophet is very similar to a New Testament apostle, Okay? We have no more Old Testament-style prophets, nor do we have any more New Testament-style apostles, but we have their writings in the Old and the New Testament. And so Paul is an apostle, and specifically, he has felt called by God, not just felt called, but was actually commissioned explicitly to go to the Gentiles. What are Gentiles? The way that we primarily think of racial division today in the U.S. is white and black because of our history, right, with the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement and Jim Crow laws and then slavery in the 1800s. The primary uh, demographic or the primary racial distinctions going on in the first century though are not that. The primary one, if you lived 2,000 years ago and you knew anything to do with Christianity or anything to do with Judaism, the primary racial division was between Jews and Gentiles. So not two Gentile groups, but rather Jews and Gentiles. Jews are the people of the Old Testament. They're the people of the nation of Israel. They're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Gentiles is just a weird church word we use for everybody else, okay? Gentile means non-Jew. So if you are British, if you are African American, if you are Asian or whatever it might be, you are a Gentile. And these apostles, these commissioned people by God, these ones who knew Jesus, knew Jesus personally, they were called to minister and preach the gospel to both groups. So some of them, like Peter, went and preached among the Jews, and you got Jewish Christian churches And the Apostle Paul here specifically feels called to go to Gentile churches. So he's kind of this apostle that goes to non-Jews. And what he does is he starts all these churches. And so at this time, the Apostle Paul had been doing missionary work in the east, over in the region of what we would think of today as Greece. And he simply says this, Dear Romans, I've wanted to visit you, and I just haven't been able to. I've been busy doing apostle stuff. I don't know what your job is, but I guarantee you it's not as stressful as being an apostle. And Paul has been busy being an apostle in the East, and now he is saying, I've wanted to come to you. So it's important that you understand this. Paul has not avoided going to Rome because he doesn't like them. He's just been busy. So it's not like when you ask me to help you move and I try to get out of it, okay? No matter what day, if you ever come up to me and say, Zach, can you help me move? No matter what the day is, I have something to do that day, right? Zach, can you help me move on Saturday? Well... Let me check the calendar, beep boop beep boop boop. I can't man, I, uh, I've got something to do Saturday. Oh yeah, what are you doing? Well, now you're going to make me lie to you. Um, I, I, uh, I'm having a medical procedure, I'm having a, uh, a face transplant. A face transplant, that, that seems pretty intense. Yeah, I mean apparently the one I currently have looks like I served in the Vietnam War and so I've got to do that and so I can't be there uh, for this moving. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get out of it. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is saying it's not the issue that I didn't really want to visit you, or you annoy me, or you have all these divisions. What he said is I haven't been able to because I've been busy planting churches. That's the idea there in verse 22. Verses 23 through 24. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So let's look at verse 23 first. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, here's what Paul is saying. I want to visit you now for two reasons. One, I'm finished doing what God has called me to do in the East. When he says here that there's no work, no room for any work in these regions, he doesn't mean no room for any work for any Christians ever. In fact, he just planted churches so they can continue making disciples. What he means is he feels as though his mission has been complete. He has planted the number of churches that Christ has asked him to plant and so he feels like he's done. So not that there's still not work to do by Christians or work to do by us as we go to the nations, but what he means there is that he feels as though his mission there is accomplished. And then the second reason he gives here is because he's wanted to visit them for a long time. Here you see Paul the pastor. You see the heart of Paul the pastor who wants to visit them and encourage them and hang out with them. Now look at verse 24. He says this. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So let me explain everything that's going on. Because again, this text this morning is a little weird. It's kind of Paul's travel itinerary. So let me explain what's going on here. Probably during Paul's third missionary journey and probably from a town called Corinth, he wrote the book of Romans or the letter of Romans in 57 AD, around that time, okay? And what Paul is doing is Paul is over in the east. I say east as, as, this, as if this is east for you. Pretend that this is east, but that is actually east. Never mind, no, no, okay, just in your mind, imagine. Paul is in the east, I won't use my hands, that doesn't make it help, helpful, and he's wanting to go west. He's wanting to go west onto a Spain. And so what he does is he writes the book or the letter of Romans to this church that he didn't found, okay? Writes this letter to this church that he didn't found to get them ready for his visit. But before he can show up to Rome to eventually use them as a launching pad for Spain, he has to introduce himself, he has to uh, rebuke them in their bad thinking, he has to encourage them in their good thinking, he has to encourage them to love one another, etc. And that's why you get the book of Romans. So here's a recap for you, just in case you're just now joining us, although we've been in Romans forever, okay? Romans chapter 1 is this, the condemnation of the Gentile, okay? Romans 1 basically says this, You stand, and I, stand under the wrath of God, even if we don't have a copy of the Scriptures, even if we didn't have the Old Testament at this time. Why? Because we still do by nature what we know to be wrong. Every culture that's ever arisen has had laws against killing and murder. Every culture that's ever arisen has had certain laws against adultery. Why? Because there's something in the human heart that even if we didn't have the Old Testament like the Jews would have had, we still know that we have wronged God. So in chapter one of Romans, Paul basically says that there's enough knowledge of God in creation to damn you, but not enough knowledge of God in creation to save you. So you can look at a mountain and say, whatever made that must be really powerful. But you don't look at a mountain and say, I bet whatever made that is Trinitarian. And the second member of the Trinity came down, became a man while remaining God, to live my li- the life I should have lived on my behalf and to die on a cross for my sins and be raised. Right? For that, you need revelation. You need God's revealed word In the scriptures so chapter one is the condemnation of the gentile chapter two is the condemnation of the jew so what about the jews that have god's word are they any better off well they're better off in some ways but not when it comes to salvation because we cannot keep it all of those rules in the old testament were not made for mankind just to keep it was to show us that we could not keep it and therefore we needed a savior romans chapter three is the condemnation of everybody so the first three chapters of romans hits like a sledgehammer okay Romans chapter 3 will say, there is none righteous, no, not one, none who seeks for God. I found Jesus. No, you didn't. You were dead, and you weren't looking for him, okay? But then we get some good news. In chapters 4 through 7, we get the good news of the gospel, that the way that somebody goes from being a sinner under the wrath of God to being a friend of God, to being forgiven, to be accepted by God, is not by doing better, is not by keeping the law, is not by doing our best. We can't do our best. We're dead. But rather, just through simple faith and repentance in Christ. That when we put our faith in Christ, God sees us as righteous as Jesus, and therefore we cannot improve upon that that righteousness. Chapter 8 is the encouragement that you have by receiving the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. The text promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even us, right? It says no created thing, you and I are created, so we cannot separate ourselves from the love of God. The question is not can you lose your salvation, it's can God lose your salvation, that's chapter 8. Chapters 9-11 through 11 talks about God's grace and election. Basically in chapters 9-11 through 11 is simply saying this, that if God made all these promises in the Old Testament to Jews, but most Jews don't repent and trust in Christ, has God been unfaithful? And Paul will say no, because salvation has always been dependent upon grace and God's election and not been dependent upon ethnicity. Chapters 12 through halfway through 15 is now, therefore, how we should live in light of that. In light of the fact that we were under God's wrath, justified by faith alone, now have the spirit, everything's going to be okay, we're going to be resurrected, we're going to have eternal life. How should we live? Chapters 12 through halfway through chapter 15 is how we are to love one another. Loving one another looks like encouraging one another, bearing one another's burdens, submitting to the government, as long as they're not asking you to sin, to not cause division over morally neutral issues, what are known as diaphra issues. And then today, and then uh, we'll skip this for Easter, and then the the next few weeks after that, you have the concluding remarks of the book of Romans, okay? Now, I say all of that to say this. Why did the Apostle Paul write the book of Romans? Scholars spill a lot of ink debating each other on this. This is a big debate in New Testament studies. Did Paul write Romans because he needed to defend his apostleship against false teachers? Did Paul write Romans because he was trying to give a systematic theology? He was trying to give a, a, a comprehensive overview of his beliefs? Did Paul write Romans because he was trying to heal tensions between Jews and Gentiles and Romans? Did Paul write Romans because he wanted to further explain the idea of justification by faith? And there's an element of truth to all those things, but the reason that Paul wrote Romans is actually much simpler than that. Do you know why he wrote Romans? Because he's going to visit a church that he wants to use as a launching pad for missionary work that he has not visited. And so what he has to do is he has to explain to them, here's who I am, here's what you should be be believing, here's what the gospel is, so that when he comes, he's already laid the groundwork for that missionary work, okay? Verses 25 through 27. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So here's the order. Here's Paul's itinerary, right? Here's his, uh, you know, know, some sort of travel.com kind of printout. Here's what it is. He's in the east in Greece. He's going to go to Jerusalem as he heads west, drop off some money. Then he's going to go to Rome. Then he's going to go to Spain. Do you see how he's working his way west? I don't know if you know where those regions are, but Spain is way more west than Greece is, okay? And so he's gonna go from the east to the west. You actually see this also in the book of Acts. Luke, Luke talks about this, Acts 19, 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome, okay? So that's kind of the way that Paul is headed. Now, look at verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Macedonia and Achaia are regions in Greece, and they have given a contribution for the saints at Jerusalem. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit here. First of all, when you see here the word saints, when you see the word saints, do not think Roman Catholic style saints. Do not think St. Peter or these kind of things. In Roman Catholicism, these saints are like super Christians. You guys and me, we're just all kind of JV Christians, we're kind of B-team, junior varsity, but in Roman Catholicism, saints are like super Christians. You can do miracles in their name, and you can ask them to pray for you despite the fact that they're dead and can't hear you, and all these other kind of things, okay? That is not what a saint is in the language of the New Testament. When the New Testament uses the word saints, do you know what it means? It simply is a reference to Christians. You guys are saints, I hereby saint you, okay? We have St. Randy and St. Jeff and St. Wade and St. Steve and St. Dana and St. Brittany, right? We, we have your saints. The reason the Bible calls us saints is this. It's the Greek word hagios. It means holy one. Here's why it does that. Before you come to know Christ, when you are lost, your identity is a sinner. Yes, you commit sins, but deeper than that, who you are and your identity is a sinner. When you become a Christian, will you still commit sins and struggle the rest of your life? Yes, but hear this. Your identity changes from being a sinner to a saint. Let me ask you this question. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself that, that knowing that when God sees you, He sees a saint? He sees someone who's perfect. He sees someone who's righteous. He sees someone as righteous as Christ because you are in Christ. Do you believe that? Or do when you think of God viewing you, do you have a tendency to think that He's angry, upset, doesn't like you, sees you as dirty? The text is going to call us saints. So when you're lost, you're a sinner who sins. When you become a Christian, you're a saint who sins. You still struggle with sin, but your identity, the way God sees you, has changed. And so that's what this text here means when it says that we are saints, that he's delivering this to the saints in Jerusalem. He means poor Christians there, okay? Now look again, it says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution. What contribution is he talking about? He's talking about a financial contribution. They've given money. How do we know? Because he says it's for the poor, among the saints at Jerusalem. So let me say a few things here because when you talk about money, this is one of the most abused things, I think, in churches. If you don't believe me, just turn on the TV when you get home and you will have some guy get up in a very expensive suit, despite the fact that the Bible actually tells us not to dress up for church, and he will get up in a very expensive suit and he will, that he flew to that conference in in his private jet, and he will say things like this, if you will give a little money to God, If you will give a little money to the church, God will give you a hundred times that amount. If you're sick, write me a check. And if you will give money to my ministry, and it's always named after the person, right? It's not Christ's ministry. They name it after themselves. If you will give money to my ministry, then you will be well, right? And what they're doing is this. They're saying, treat God like a divine slot machine where you put in a quarter and you get to hit a jackpot because you don't really love God. You love what God gives. You You love money. You'll see that all the time. You'll see it with the Word of Faith movement, with the prosperity gospel, with TBN preachers. You'll see that kind of stuff all the time. And so they constantly abuse this topic of money. And so let me just clearly explain what the Bible says about this, okay? In the Old Testament, what would happen is if you were an Israelite, there wasn't a separation of church and state, okay? If you were an Israelite and you lived in Israel, it was a theocracy. Yes, there were some different checks and balances. You had to be of the line of Judah to be a king or the line of Levi to be a priest. But other than that, your state and your religion went together. You either belonged to Israel and worshiped Yahweh, or you belonged to some other nation and worshiped some false god. Those were kind of your two options. And so what would happen in the Old Testament is if you were a citizen of Israel, you had to give what was called a tithe. That word means tenth, okay? You were, it, was a, it was a national tax where everybody gave a tenth of their income to the priest in the temple. Why? Because the priests are busy doing priest things. They're busy offering sacrifices, Counseling people, teaching the Bible, and praying. Because they're helping you out spiritually, you would help them out physically. That was going on in the Old Testament, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, but we're not in Israel. We are not Israelites. The temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, okay? Not only that, we are no longer bound by the stipulations of Old Testament Mosaic law. So having said that, you today are not required to give 10% of your income. By the way, if you're a visitor right now, I'm not talking to you about this at all. We don't want any of your money. You keep it. Buy yourself something nice. If you're members, listen to what I'm saying, okay? In the New Testament, you are not bound to give 10% of your income. You might be, things might be financially tight for you, so maybe you give 1%. You might secretly be a billionaire. You just walked in and didn't tell me you were a billionaire. You just drove in your 2002 Honda instead of coming in in a helicopter, and you are actually a billionaire. Maybe you should give 90% and live off the other 10. You would be just fine. So there is no requirement, no stipulation as far as an amount that you give in the New Testament. In the New Testament, here's the requirement, that you do give to the work of ministry for two important reasons. One, to help the poor. You see this here. Notice that Paul's not taking up money so he can get a sweet jet or a faster camel to get to Rome. Paul is using the money so he can give it away to those who are poor. And we give money to support the work of ministry, to support missionaries, church planners, these kind of things. First Corinthians says that. First Corinthians 9, 6-7 and verse 11 says this. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Okay? That's the idea of giving. So what Paul is doing is he's taking up money from these churches to help those who are poor. Not to exalt himself, not to create, uh, you know, ApostlePaulMinistries.com or whatever it is, but just so he can help those in need. The command in the New Testament is about your heart. God doesn't need your stuff. God doesn't need your money. Anybody here think that, like, when you give something to God, you're giving him something he doesn't already own? God owns everything. He keeps you existing every second of the day, Okay. You need him. He needs nothing from you. He possesses a satiety of himselfness. He needs nothing from you, okay? The reason the New Testament even talks about money at all is because it's a heart check. You want to know what your God is? Look at your bank account. What do you spend your time, your efforts, your money all towards? And it will tell you something about your heart. The command in the New Testament is this, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now notice these churches here in Greece, Gentile churches, have been cheerful givers. Look at verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Here's the idea. Christianity is the culmination, the completion of Judaism. Christianity grows out of Judaism. It's not really a new religion, it's completed Judaism. And what Paul is saying is if you Gentile Christians have received salvation from this rich root of the olive tree, Judaism, then it is right and good for you to help them materially. So I'll give you an example. My wife has given, in a sense, everything to me, right? She has, she's the mother of my children. She has married me. She puts up with me. I am not an easy man to be married to. I am a perfectionist, which makes me very demanding. And she has given me her life. Conversely, I give her everything. I marry her, I'm the father of her children. I spend my time and my emotions and my thoughts thinking of her, except when she wants some of my french fries. (laughs) Anybody else? For whatever reason, I would die for Kay. I would take a bullet for her, I would be tortured for her, I would do all these things, but when I order food and I get a burger and fries, I get the perfect amount that I need to be full. Okay. And so what she will do is she'll grab some and she'll just grab them. Can I have some of your fries? No, 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 and she starts eating them. And I am like, you scorpion woman, why did you take this? I will buy you all the fries. Go, go order a hundred orders of fries. I will buy you all the fries. I'll buy you your own fries. Just don't eat my fries, right? This happened the other day. I had some chips, and she's like, can I have some chips? I'm like, Katie, we have had this fight a thousand times. If you take one chip, I w- when I'm done eating, I will not be full one chip's worth, right? Now, the problem in this illustration is not my wife, okay? The problem in this illustration is me. She has given me everything. Can I not give her some fries in return? That's kind of what Paul is saying here. If you have inherited salvation out of this root of Judaism, Gentile churches, it is good and right and fitting that you have given to these material needs for these poor Christians in Jerusalem. That's what Paul is saying here in this text. And thankfully, he's not having to correct them. He's encouraging them. He's saying, you guys rightfully recognize that. Now, let me tell you what might be going on in the back of, uh, kind of, the back of Paul's mind as he's writing this part of Romans. In the Old Testament, there are these promises that God will save Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, okay? The Old Testament was never just about God saving Jews. It was about God using Jews to save the world, to save Gentiles, so there was this promise in the Old Testament, and it comes up a lot, that Gentiles would flock to Jerusalem. Gentiles would flock to Zion. Gentiles would uh, receive the God of Israel. And conversely, Israel would even be blessed financially because of that. That might be what Paul's thinking in his mind. I'll show you just two verses, but there's a bunch. Isaiah 45:14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt, notice that's a Gentile nation, and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, Gentile nations. Men of stature shall come over to you. Notice, there's this promise that the Jews benefit here materially, financially. And be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Notice that. The Jews get this blessing of the nations, and yet the Gentiles receive salvation. Isaiah 61.6. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you uh, as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. That might be what Paul has in the back of his mind. As he's saying that it's fitting that because Gentiles received a Jewish salvation, that Jewish Christians receive a Gentile material blessing, he might be having these kind of prophetic hopes in the back of his mind. Verses 28 through 29. When therefore... I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected. I will leave for Spain by way of you. At this time, Spain is called Hispania. That's why you actually call somebody Hispanic who is, uh, has an ethnicity derived from Spain. It was uh, really settled by the Romans in about 200 B.C., but it really became popular right before Paul's lifetime. I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Not a lot here. I just want to, this, this is Paul repeating himself, just telling what he's, he's going to do. Uh, But I want to mention a few things here. First of all, we don't know if Paul ever actually made it to Spain. So everybody clear what Paul's itinerary is? I'm in Greece, then I'm going to go west, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and drop off some money. Then I'm going to go west further, and I'm going to go to Rome and hang out with the Romans, right? When in Rome, that's what he's going to do. He's going to get there and be like, I bet this place wasn't built in a day. It's a beautiful city. And then he's going to go further west, and he's going to go to Spain. We don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain. There's some evidence outside of the New Testament that would suggest that he did, but it falls short of strong proof. There are other proofs in church history that would say, no, he actually ended up dying in Rome. We know he went to Jerusalem because of the book of Acts. We know that he went to Rome because of the book of Acts. We don't know if he ever made it to Spain. Okay? Paul did go to Rome, but he didn't go the way that he thought he would. He went as a prisoner. By the way, can that ever happen where God answers your prayer but not the way that you thought it was going to happen? That happens with Paul. And now look at the end of verse 29. What does it mean when he talks about bringing a blessing of Christ? All that probably means is that when I come to you, I will be encouraged and you will be encouraged. When I come to you, I will pray for you, teach you, encourage you, we'll hang out, laugh, eat good food, these kind of things, and we will be encouraged. Verses 30 through 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's look at verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Do you see the Trinitarian reference there? Paul is thoroughly monotheistic. That's one of the big claims of Judaism, right? The Bible says this over and over and over again that there is only one God. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Isaiah says, God says, there's no gods before me, there are no gods after me. I alone am God. Not only that, God claims that there's not even no other gods, there's nothing even like him. He's in a whole other class by himself. Sometimes when the Bible uses the term gods, plural, it's just a reference to angels. They're not gods, they're just angels, these kind of things. There is only one God. The Bible's clear on this over and over and over again. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, there's only one God, and so when you worship something other than the God of the Bible, you're committing idolatry, you're worshiping a demon, there's only one God. And yet, Paul sees this one God somehow also as Jesus and the Spirit. This is where you get kind of this Trinitarianism in the Bible. When you cut Paul, he bleeds Trinity. He knows there's only one God, and yet somehow he equates that God with Jesus, and he equates that God with the Spirit. And so you see that here in the text here. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and by the love of the Spirit, there's the third person, to strive together with me in your prayers to God, that's a reference to the Father, on my behalf. You see Trinitarianism here with the Apostle Paul. Okay? So, so keep in mind, when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean something different than when we talk about our kids. So I have a son, his name is Judah, but if I ask you how many humans are there when we're standing together, what's the answer? Two. And guess what? I'm older than he is, and he used to not exist until I brought him into existence. None of that is true when it comes to God the Son. Okay, So Jesus is a different person than the Father, but he, there's only one God. right? There's only one God, not two. And the Father is not older than the Son. The Son is eternal, co-equal, co-eternal. The Alpha and the Omega, he is before all things. He's in the beginning. Okay, The Father did not bring him into existence. He has always existed. So we need to understand here that Paul has this kind of in, in, in this latent Trinitarianism in his language. He does this all the time. He only believes there's one God, but he'll constantly equate that God with Jesus, equate that God with the Spirit, talk about the Father, and so you see biblical Trinitarianism here in the text. Okay? Now look what he asked for here. He asks them for prayer. He wants them to intercede. He asked for this ministry of intercession. Will you intercede for me? Will you pray for me? The Bible commands us not just to pray for ourselves, and to pray for our family members or these kind of things. The Bible commands us to pray for one another. We're a body, okay? If your, if your leg hurts, it affects the rest of your body. And can I give you a really good tip in praying for other people? So the next time somebody calls you and asks for prayer, or you're praying for somebody, pretend that you're in their situation as you're praying. It will help you be empathetic with them in your prayers. If they have a sick child, pretend what it would be like for you to have a sick child. They have marriage struggles, pretend what it's like for you to have marriage struggles. They have financial issues, pretend what it's like, and the stresses that come with having financial issues. John Calvin says, Paul shows how the godly ought to pray for their brethren, that they are to assume their person as though they were placed in the same difficulties, okay? Verse 31 describes what they should pray for. Two things, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul prays for two things. As I'm gonna drop off this sweet paycheck to these poor people in uh, Jerusalem, pray for two things. My protection, that people do not try to physically hurt me, which the Jews have done a lot in Paul's ministry, okay? By the way, as as a little aside, when the New Testament talks negatively about the Jews, it's not because it's anti-Semitic. Jesus is Jewish. All the New Testament authors are Jewish, okay? It's not anti-Semitic. When the Bible speaks negatively about the Jews, it means unbelieving Jews. It's a theological critique not an ethnic or a racial critique. He's talking about the Jews that hate him in Judea. And he says, pray for my protection and pray that my gift would be accepted. Why would Paul have to pray for that? If somebody comes and offers you some money, don't you take it? Well, Paul knows that to receive Paul's money is to receive Paul's message and that there might be a chance that he takes this long trip to Jerusalem. He can't just hop on a flight. He can't take an Uber or something like that. He has to walk. It's going to take a really long time or ride some sort of animal. It's going to take a long time to get there. And there's the potential that he could get there and the churches say, we don't want to be persecuted because you're the guy that says you're just saved by Jesus. You're the guy that says we don't need the Mosaic law for salvation. You're the guy who says we don't need to do circumcision. I don't want to be associated with your ministry because my Jewish brethren will hate me. I'm not going to take your money. So that's a potential as well. And so Paul asked for prayer that he would be protected and that they would accept his offering. Now, here's what's interesting. It looks like both of these prayers were granted in God's grace. He asked the church to pray for him, and it looks like they both happened. Let me show you two places in Acts. The first one's kind of long, but I think it's worth reading. Acts 23, 16 through 24. Now the son of Paul's sister... By the way, wouldn't that be interesting if your uncle was the Apostle Paul? You had like like an Uncle Paul, and uh, he would like take you fishing and teach you about eternal life? That'd be awesome. Okay. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, these Jews that are wanting to kill Paul. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, uh, and going aside with him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than about 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, and with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night." also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So Paul says, pray that I will not be killed, that I will not be attacked by the Jews. God answers this prayer, okay? These people are going to kill him. They find out about it, and so soldiers can then protect him. And it also seems like his offering was accepted. We don't know this for sure, but the text hints at it. Let me show you two places. Acts twenty-one seventeen. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, which means they also probably received this donation. And then Acts 24, 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So Paul says, I'm stressed out, pray to the Trinitarian God that I would be protected and that people would receive my gift. And it looks like God has answered the prayer of the church, that there's this power, not just in prayer individually, but this corporate prayer, this idea of praying together and, and for one another. And look at the last two verses. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Okay? Paul's hope is that as he's hanging out with Rome, that it will encourage his spirit. It will bring joy to his heart. Let me say it this way. Community, being around other Christians, is a means of grace for you by God. God grows you. God sanctifies you. God encourage you encourages you by being around other Christians, okay? doesn't mean you always have to be around other Christians. It's okay to be an introvert. It's okay to be an introvert, okay? But if there's something in your heart that doesn't rejoice when you're with other Christians, there's something where you find out somebody's a Christian at work and it doesn't rejoice your heart, if that's the case, there's something broken in you. If there's not some sort of refreshment, some sort of encouragement, some sort of joy that comes with being the people of God, there is something that is broken in you because Paul is excited to go there and hang out with them because he knows that that is God's means of grace to encourage him. They can pray for one another. They can laugh with one another. They can share good meals with one another. They can listen to good music with one another. There is a grace there that comes with community and the Apostle Paul is looking forward to it, okay? You can't do Lone Ranger Christianity no matter how godly you think you are because you are not wired to do that by God. Let me just give you an example in my own life. I know that the Bible teaches that God loves me. Okay? It says that a bajillion times. I know that it says that. I've read that. I've read that in Greek. I've taught sermons on that. I have taught theological equipping classes on that. I know that the Bible says that God loves me. But one day, a friend of mine came up, who's a Christian, and he just put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, I just feel like I'm supposed to tell you that God loves you, and He's not mad at you. And I just started weeping. Okay? Like crying hard, like awkwardly, making all the weird sounds kind of crying. Why was it so powerful when somebody told me something that I already knew? Because that's the way God works. He uses other people to encourage the body. We are like a body. If you imagine a body, a body has different parts. Fingers are different than toes or different than legs or different than eyes or different than noses, whatever it might be. And we are not wired to function alone. Cut off your hand and just see how it does by itself. It doesn't do very well. It does great when it's attached to the body, okay? And so there is something about the way that God has wired us to where we must have community, we must have other Christians, we must have these kind of things, and Paul is looking forward to that. okay? If you don't like that, there's something broken in you. There's something broken in you, okay? Again, not that you have to be around them all the time. I'm an extrovert. If I'm exhausted, I want to have a party. I want to speak publicly if I'm exhausted. Other people are not that way, okay? If you're more introverted, you prefer to withdraw. Those are both okay. We're not talking about how much you're around Christians, there should be something, though, that when you are around Christians, it does encourage your heart. So, in conclusion, what do we do with this text? This is one of the things about preaching line by line through the Bible, doing expository preaching, which it makes you teach on some weird things. Here, basically, the Apostle Paul just says three times, I'm going to go to Spain, I think. I'm going I'm go to go to Rome, but, well, before I go to Rome, I, I have to go to Jerusalem. And I really hope I don't get killed there, but then I'm going to go to Rome and then maybe to Spain. He just says that same thing like three times. What do we do with this text if it's for us? Well, there are four things I want you to see in this text, okay? Number one, I want you to see unity in helping each other financially. Unity in helping each other financially. One of the things I love to hear is when somebody here at Parkway, let's say they lose their job, their community group rallies around them and helps them buy groceries or something. That's awesome. That's the body being the body. We're to have unity in helping each other financially. We're to have unity in helping each other in prayer. Do you pray not just for you and for your neighbor's dog and for the troops and all these kind of general things? Do you pray for others? Do you pray for others here? Do you pray for your elders, your deacons, your uh, community group leaders, your friends? Do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for uh, uh, lost people? Are you praying for others? There's an idea of unity in helping each other in prayer here. Number three, there's unity in helping encourage each other. Helping encourage each other. Listen, there is a time for cynicism. Cynicism is not sin. Read the prophets. You shouldn't be cynical towards God, but you should be cynical towards other people. There is a time to be prophetic. There is a time to rebuke. There is a time to be critical. Okay? But you know what's always in season? Encouragement. Encouragement. It's so much easier to pick on somebody's problem than it is to go up to them and just encourage them. Hey, you're an excellent dad. You're an excellent mom. I've seen you grow so much in your walk. You're doing great. You're doing a great job with your kids. It's fun to work with you. You're a good friend. I love you. I've been praying for you, whatever it might be. That we are to encourage one another, to encourage one another. And then lastly, unity in helping each other see the mission of God, the missio Day. the mission of God, okay? We don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain, but it doesn't matter when you look at his heart. Here is what the apostle Paul cares about, that every tongue would confess and every knee would bow before Christ. That's his heart. What Paul just wants is for people to meet Jesus. He wants the kingdom to expand. His whole life is about that. His missionary work, his church planning, his being an apostle, his visit of Rome, all of that. He's not just using the Romans because he doesn't care for the Romans. He loves the Romans, and he has a bigger mission to accomplish, which is the salvation of God's elect. So let me just end by telling you this. Here's the message that Paul would want me to tell you if he were alive today, okay? Here's the message. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. We have offended an infinite being, and so the punishment for that is infinite. But because this infinite being loves us, he has sent his son, his eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on humanity while remaining God. He's still God, and he takes on humanity, and he lives life righteously because we haven't. He lives life righteously on our behalf. And then he dies on a cross because we deserve to die. We deserve to get killed because we've rebelled against God, but he gets killed in our place. And God raises him from the dead, showing he is the Messiah. He is the ruler of the world. And if you will simply repent and trust in him, God will change your life. If you will repent and trust in Christ, you will go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Here's my fear for some of you, especially if you grew up in church, is that you think that you're a Christian, but you're not. That happened to me. I thought I was a Christian when I was 11, but I realized I was not a Christian until many years after that, when I actually got saved. That's my fear for some of you. Growing up in the South, growing up in evangelicalism, going to church your whole life, my fear is that there are some people in here who think that they're saved, and if I say, why do you think you're saved? How do you know that you're saved? They'll say something they've done. I prayed a prayer when I was six. I got baptized. I responded to an altar call, right? Uh, I've been in church my whole life. I, I read my Bible. I try not to do bad things. I'm basically a good person. None of those things save you. You know what saves you? Jesus, and that's it. He has to do the saving. You can't do it. Salvation is not really something you decide. Yes, you make a decision, but that's not really the saving. Jesus has to do the saving. Salvation is something God does to you. The Bible says in John 3 that the Holy Spirit's like the wind. He just blows wherever he will. He just opens people's hearts. So my question to you is, do you know Jesus? Are you saved? And if you're not sure, here's the great news. You can know. You can simply repent. You can simply ask him to save you. You can simply bow your knee before him and call him Lord. That's the idea. Turn away from the brokenness. Turn away from the wretchedness. Turn away from those things and find life. His yoke is easy. His burden is light bruised reed he will not break. If you are feeling crushed, Jesus has come to remove your burden, to give you joy. Not always to take away the difficult circumstance, but to be with you in it. If that's you, would you ask Christ to change you, ask Christ to save you, submit to him as we pray. As the uh, volunteers helping serve communion come forward, uh, let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And I just confess, I mean, a million times this week, Uh, that I have wronged you, that I have sinned against you, that I have had thoughts I shouldn't have, that I've had anger that I shouldn't have, that I've had pride that I shouldn't have, that I've not been as gracious as I should have been, that I've not loved you more than everything and loved you with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. There are just a million ways that we've fallen short. So I pray for everyone in here. I pray that if they're already Christians, that they would just rejoice in you, that they would rest, that they would relax, that they would... Uh, take a deep breath and have a good meal and have a hot bath and just enjoy the good things you've given them. I pray for those though that are not Christians, I pray that right now just through the preaching of the word, they might have heard the gospel message maybe for the first time. They might have heard for the first time that there's salvation for them in Christ. So I pray that you would open their heart because I confess they can't do it. That as Romans itself says, that there is none who seeks for God. No, not one. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Would you be with us now as we partake of communion?